Hey everybody, and welcome to Anthrospin, the all things anthropology podcast where we meet with different anthropologists and learn what they're into, what they're up to, and what's going on in their corner of the universe that is anthropology. In this episode, we meet with Justin Soares, a Bronze Age archaeologist focusing on the Iberian Peninsula. In addition to his work in archaeology, we talk about our respective field experiences, Eurocentrism and gatekeeping in academia, and our own anthropological origin stories. Okay, so just while I'm, uh, you know, finishing setting this up, I just want to, you know, thank you for agreeing to do this today. Um, I know it's kind of an odd format to go into it with just like a general rough idea of what we're doing and not quite any direction. That's why I was like, do you have like anything you want me to read or like a schedule you want to adhere to? I mean, originally I was like, it, it, it's going to be the general, like, what got you into anthropology? What are you, what are you up to in the field? What are you, um, what are you up to in general to kind of like humanize academia? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was like, stop that. Then it was like, uh, like, what, like something you're reading right now, or like whether it's articles that you are excited about or a book that you're excited, like that type of stuff. And then I, and I was like, screw it, I'm just going to wing it. And <laughs> this this is what happened. This is what happened. And and it's fine. I like the sort of conversational approach rather than the interview approach. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's it's not going to be a short editing process. The um, Your Portuguese minor, was that a Portuguese language or history? Portuguese language and culture. Um yeah, and it definitely influenced where I'm at now. Yeah, I'd imagine. Um, so as part of my minor, I, I took a lot of language classes. Language classes, um, once you get to the advanced level, you start reading novels, you start reading history, you start doing cultural things. Because Portuguese is spoken in, let's see, Europe, Africa, Asia, South America, in like eight different countries. New Bedford and the east side. <laughs> yeah, New Bedford as a, as a continent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, you start reading pieces from all over the world. You start getting very, very anthropological about just one language. And yeah. it, it gets very interesting. And um, you get very attached to the group of individuals you're with because you start at the 101 level and then you're you're in a group of 30. But by the time you get to the 300 level, there's five of you left. You've already <laughs> made fools of yourself in front of each other because you're trying to pronounce words. You're embarrassed. Yeah. And then you like... Eight of you go to Portugal together and live there for a month studying, and then you come back, and like, there's just no shame between eight of you anymore. Um, the professor I worked with, Dr. Sylvia Oliveira, uh, she is an incredible human being. I have no clue how she finds the the time and energy to do her own stuff and help me with so much of my stuff. She's had me in as um, a presenter. I gave a presentation on 200 years of resistance to the Roman Empire in, in Iberia. And uh, she's written countless letters of rec and always been there. And a really interesting aspect about her is that her partner, Kirk, um, has a daughter who's an archaeologist. Oh. So when I was like trying to figure out what my move after undergrad was, I was like, I think I'm 
into archaeology and I don't know what to do. It's like awkwardly coming out to a professor being like, I think I'm going to go down a career path that's going to make me absolutely no money. What do I do? <laughs> and she's like, I've got just the thing. You're going to come out to lunch with me and my husband. And I'm just like, okay, I don't see how this is the thing. Oh, his daughter's digging in Germany. And I'm just like, oh, okay. So like we go out to eat. And I'm just like, I don't know how to like make this a viable option or like what to do. And he's like, well, we did this with my daughter. This is how we went about it. And now she's at her third or fourth year in Germany. And she she works in a much more recent time period. She's into World War II archaeology. Okay. So she's going in and it's sort of muddied by the politics of it. But she's going and digging up former Nazi sites just to preserve the history that's there. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't get forgotten. So it doesn't get destroyed by water damage, by any sort of natural elements, just so that when the time comes and like it's okay to talk about, it's there. Yeah. Uh, where Where is she living in Germany? Uh, I don't know. I've never actually met her. I've had oh, okay. sit down lunches talking to her dad <laughs> about her. I've met her brother. I've never met her. Yeah. So it's really weird talking about her like she's someone I know. Because I'm actually moving there. Oh shit. Okay. Yeah, in like a year and a half, where my wife and I moved. Uh, I I can get in touch with Sylvia and be like. Hey, where does your stepdaughter live? <laughs> Don't be weird. Yeah. Um, so I, I had her as a resource, and she's now been folded over into my trying to create a sort of archaeological linguistic connection between Rhode Island College and affordable digs in the Iberian Peninsula. So, yeah. And uh, as far as how it's affected my research... Um, How, how to best tackle that subject. Um, so it, it's only natural that once I start looking at what am I um, qualified to talk about from a, a family history perspective, yeah. um, Portugal comes up. Uh, my whole family has lived on the same mountain for at least five generations. Very small village up in the north. So, uh, yeah, it, I, I got into Iberian archaeology, and the more I got into it, I get I got into my graduate program, and I realized everything is very Rome-centric, or, or very Greco-Roman-centric uh, at the least. So I was just like looking at my next step after grad school, and it would have been a PhD program, and it's like, well, these are the languages you need to know. You need to know uh, ancient Greek, ancient Roman, Roman, or Latin, wow, um, German, French, English. I was just like, well, I know you need to know Romance languages, but what about like Portuguese and Spanish? I already know those. Shouldn't they be able to contribute to my like academic pursuits? Well, no, those aren't typically, you know, academic languages. I was like, but what if that's the academics I am studying? And they're like, who studies Iberia? And I was just like, that moment on, I was like, I'm going to study Iberia. Yeah. And I'm going to normalize talking about sources that y'all can't read because you're so hung up on learning French and German that you don't have access to what I have access to. So, uh, I'm learning German. <laughs> it's a good language. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with <laughs> no, it. I know. It's just like telling me I can't pursue a degree because I need to know German first is like, okay, but why, why can't I learn Portuguese or yeah. Spanish? So when I finally present my hundred page thesis and I was like, yeah, these are my sources. You can't read them by the way, cause you know, six languages and these aren't any of them. <laughs> um, I was definitely on a pedestal there and, uh, yeah, I, I sort of made it a mission to like study an area of the world that was neglected. Like we talk about Bronze Age history all the time, Bronze Age trade, as far as how it deals, like how the Eastern Mediterranean dealt with the collapse of the Bronze Age. And through those entire courses, we never mention 
Iberia's involvement in that. I never mentioned that, you know, Iberia is called out in the Bible as being a place where like gold came from, where I think it was King Solomon went to visit at one point to make sure trade was going on. And I was just like, how are we not talking about Tarsus, Tartessos, like the place that set it all up? Um, So it's, it's about getting the sources that are currently written in Portuguese and Spanish and translating them into English and presenting them in a new light so that way we can reconceptualize what we know about the Bronze Age, early Iron Age, and maybe even the Chalcolithic because the Copper Age was definitely more uh, multi-European or pan-European than we give it credit for. Yeah. So then this goes back to your whole, um, when we were talking on Facebook, when I was like, you want to do this? Um you were talking about wanting to do away with just like the classics and make yeah uh so that's that's a that's a stance that i sort of learned when i got into classics because during during my undergrad i was anthro and history mm-hmm. which had its own drawbacks because i still did it in 5 years so i didn't take all the anthro courses i could have i didn't take all the history courses i i could have so i was really just this weird amalgamation of like half and half then threw myself into a classics course where, you know, you have kids who've been speaking Latin for six years. And I'm just like, I have nothing to contribute here. <laughs> I, I contribute so little like, that I'm horrible. just going to throw my Portuguese and Spanish around with as much weight as I can and, and throw myself into this project. Um, but in getting involved in classics, you, we, Brandeis itself is, is pretty forward thinking. Mm-hmm. And, um, they're trying to do away with the terminology of classics as well. They're, they're very um, into calling it Mediterranean studies, ancient Greek and Roman studies, which I think is a more accurate name um, because classics is very, and like I said earlier, you're putting one particular study on a pedestal, one particular time period and culture, and that's at the detriment of every other. Um, there's also been criticism of the way the discipline itself is organized because if you look at classics programs the the rigorous requirements to become a phd in classics you have to have all these languages under your belt you have to have either field school experience or some sort of extensive philological background that at the end it's it's mostly just a bunch of white dudes talking about livy and trying to diversify that conversation is very difficult trying to bring in a person of color and not have an entirely white department gets very challenging when your standards are just too rigorous that you're only going to get like prep school kids out of Princeton who, who qualify as a classicist. Um, that and the subject matter itself also gets very dicey. You can become the source of like some very right wing um, mindsets if if you're looking at classics, calling it classics and looking at Rome as if it was this purely white period in time, um, which is very dangerous given the modern climate of the world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm very into not keeping classics what it is and diversifying it a whole bunch. And the field is getting there. We're no longer looking into, like, the 1% of ancient populations. We're more concerned with what are the commoners doing? What are, like, yeah. the average people doing? Can we, instead of digging up this palace, go dig up the outskirts and like figure out what the day-to-day lives of normal humans were like. And thankfully that's happening. 
Yeah, that's... I don't know if I mentioned it while I was asking if you wanted to do this, but, like, I'm really excited for, like, our generation of researchers because we have that kind of, like, well, what about everyone else? Attitude. Yeah. And just, like, in our, our senior sem uh, class, like, you were doing the gendered aspects of punk dance. Woo. Um Kayla was working on um, gendered aspects of video game culture, yep. and both of you got resistance that those aren't really valid valid topics. Yeah, <laughs> and and then like I must have pitched like eleven different projects, and they were they just like they were no can't do this can't do this, and then finally I just did my um, it was on feminism, and I did it wasn't necessarily an original contribution, but like. Like, I'm going to school for biological anthropology. Every biological anthropology biological anthropology project that I've pitched, you've shot down because, I don't know, if it's not Greek, you don't want anything to do with it. Our, our uh, senior seminar was very culture-oriented. It was, and that sucked. It did. Like, I, I really, like, I enjoyed it because I enjoy cultural anthropology. I didn't enjoy it because I was very directed, like, um... I also did an honors thesis in um, in bioanth, and I wanted my project to establish those methods with the collections at Rhode Island College, and they wouldn't let me do it. Weird. Like, like I I even had like a body of literature. Like this is what I'm drawing from. This is what I want to do. There's a small collection here. I would like to just know what I'm doing before I show up at the Harvard Museum of Comparative Zoology with a pair of calipers and I'm like give me your monkey heads like I, I would like to be able to like hit the ground running with this and um, then I would also be able to incorporate this data however small the set may be I can include it in my honors and broaden that and they're like no you can't do that like why because you don't know what I'm looking at like, it's my job to explain that to you. If you understand it at the end of reading the paper, I've done my job. But they just, they didn't want me to do that. <laughs> and, and it was annoying. But I did it anyway, so. Huh. Yeah, it was, it was a trying time because we didn't get much guidance. Certainly I would have liked more guidance. <laughs> yeah, they just like bickered like a married couple. And then uh, one of them disappeared to Greece off. Anyone who knows who these two individuals are can immediately yeah. pinpoint this individual without telling the other. Yeah. And they just sat in the classroom like, well, someone went to Greece for two weeks without telling me. <laughs> and we were all just like, Ugh. Yeah. yeah, that was actually my only class with Peter Allen. My second one with Peter Allen. Yeah. That. He, uh, I remember specifically one time, he, we had to watch his video. I don't even know what it was about anymore, but I do know it took like four hours to kill a giraffe. Do you recall the one? No. It was like following this tribe somewhere in, I want to say like sub-Saharan Africa. Okay. And these like two very white individuals are just like following them with a camera. And they corner a giraffe and they're trying to take it down with just spears, wooden spears. And it takes like four hours to bring this thing down. Four hours of footage, two days of actual like throwing spears at a giraffe. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the giraffe just drops and he pauses the video and is like, yeah, they shot the giraffe because it was taking too long. <laughs> and I'm just like, that defeats the whole purpose yeah. of the two days of filming you've done. And while he's like trying to put the the projector screen back up, 
he rips it off the wall. <laughs> so you just hear, and then the, the spool just spread, like, recoils, and the whole thing just falls to the floor. And he's like, huh. Department. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Gage was, uh... Have you been there recently? It's like a different planet. Yeah, that was my experience. Um, I got asked to do a presentation there. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, asbestos floor tiles, yellow lighting. Ceiling I can go in there. falling on the students. And no problem, no pressure. I get in there and I'm in this, the entryway area with that double high ceiling and the two projectors coming from the, yep. the ceiling. I had to present in there. Going from thinking I was at the former to the latter, I got so nervous and I generally pace and point at things on a projector screen. Mm -hmm. You can't do that on the projectors of whole floor above you. So I'm like over here like, and over there? <laughs> and it was it was great, but it was terrifying. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's just so much different. Bright, clean. Yeah. Looks like an academic institution. It does. <laughs> Not a fallout shelter. Yeah. Yeah, or like a shared space with the YMCA or something. It, did um, Pierre ever tell you about cleaning out Gage? I don't know. Um, so I met with Pierre um, because he was one of my, um, he wrote one of my letters of rec for my master's. And um, I was like, oh yeah, I'm like, did you find anything cool? You're moving it out? And he's like, well, there are two bodies in the closet that I knew were there. I was like, excuse me? It's like, yeah, a long time ago, like these individuals, they were doing some repairs to like their yard and they unearthed. Um, two Native American children, and uh, I didn't know what to do with them, so I put them in the closet. And I'm just like, uh-huh. So they were just partially interred, like, still with dirt in a box. And you remember the old um, cartography room with, like, the aircraft carrier thing on the back? The large flat table? No. You don't remember that room? I think it was, like, gauge 206. Second floor... You go in, and then, like, the back just had this massive gray thing. Oh, yes. With a little okay, cabinet yeah. in the back. Yep. So that was the old geography base right. when they used to, like, hand-draw maps. In that closet, there were just two Native American children in a box. And Pierre... That's not cool at all. No, that's very <laughs> old archaeology. Um, I guess one of them had been given to Pierre. One had been there a long time. Pierre gave them both back to the Narragansett tribe, like, no harm, no foul. <laughs> <laughs> that's... Awkward. That's really awkward, especially coming from Pierre, who was like so Nagpra close. before Nagpra was a thing. Yeah. And I think it's because of that relationship that he could be that intermediary handing them back. Yeah. But the without. fact that it took so long. Yeah, it's like, I forgot about these guys. I guess, like, if that happens, like, what do you. Yeah, what do, do you do? Like, closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Top shelf. <laughs> wow. Can you imagine, like, just being some adjunct to opening a closet and, like, dirt and bones falling on you because you didn't know what box was up there? Like, so many bad things could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. I did, um, so I took part in his field school with, um, the Wakefield Quaker Meeting House. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was fun. Uh, yeah. Very hands-on. He definitely showed us as much archaeology as I had experienced up until that point. And it's just, I feel like he was in an impossible position because as an archaeology professor at Rhode Island College who studies, you know, Native American archaeology, you're not going to, like, gather up a group of students and go to Europe for open context archaeology. You're not. That doesn't apply to anyone's research. And then what do you do? Most of your work is predominantly 
New England-based archaeology, that's not really exploding right now. Actually, yeah. it is in Avon, Connecticut. But no one in Rhode Island is doing any open-air context, and Rick is certainly not giving you any funding. So Well, there's like the archaeology of College Hill now. Yeah, but... Yeah, I guess that's fair. I mean, it's not very, very big. and This is my own bias of, like, <laughs> wanting old things. Surely yeah. you can relate. Yeah, no, I totally We're not exactly digging for, you know, Bronze Age sites here. Yeah. And there's good reason why. There's a lot more to unpack in um, North American history than there is in European history. So, yeah. But the Quaker Meeting House project was very good. Yeah. How did you find your way to Bronze Age anyway? Is it? So, um, after my pursuits of cultural anthropology fizzled out because the field is dead, um, <laughs> I, I have always cared a lot about archaeology. It was my second favorite or one of my favorites. Growing up in a four field, you kind of get into each four and then you have the tough decision of which of the four. <laughs> yeah. Um, so for a long time, I thought I was going to do linguistics and then I ended up in archaeology. So, uh, yeah, I went to Brandeis. And my whole pitch, um, my whole thought process, I guess, was uh, at the time I was very into Southeast Asia. I was like, I'm going to do Southeast Asian history. And then I thought about it and I was like, the world doesn't need another white Southeast Asian historian <laughs> teaching them things that have nothing to do with his own personal life. And I was like, so what am I qualified for? And uh, I met with a few professors and like sat down and had dinner with them and talked it out. And they were like, well, why don't you do Europe? I mean, you're very Portuguese. You've been there a lot. You talk about Portugal, it's got a very unique history and no one outside of Portugal really knows about it. So I look into Portugal and it's the first modern nation state to emerge out of the Roman Empire, essentially. Um, and it's very weird that it's on the fringe and it becomes very well established. So I started with the Roman period and uh, for my thesis, I needed something. So I just, in a, in a moment of ignorance, decided to read all the Portuguese history I could, which started in the Holocene. And obviously, <laughs> that's a small project, right? Um, so I made it to like the Bronze Age. I was like, guess I'm going to stay here. Um, and the Bronze Age for Iberia has this weird phenomena. And a century or two of historians trying to assemble a narrative around it for a long time. They thought it was like cultural diffusion coming directly from Greece or Rome and like just filling out the landscape when really now we know more. Now we know that there were populations there who had their own unique cultures. Um, and for a brief period of the Bronze Age, um, there was a lot of trade going from the easternmost point of the Mediterranean. So like Phoenicia was heavily involved in shaping Iberian trade. And um, for a century, Iberia was this linchpin in between a trade route that encompassed all of the Mediterranean and all of the Atlantic. So goods were going from the British Isles all the way to, say, Phoenicia because of this connection through Iberia. And that is only maintained for about 100 years, but the extent of that needs to really be pursued and fleshed out. So yeah. that's that's sort of what I'm into um, up until, like, the Roman period. The wars of resistance to imperialism were pretty fun in Iberia. Um, took 200 years, but it eventually fell to Rome. Yeah, yeah he's ancient. So he's, he's mostly blind and mostly deaf and mostly doesn't know what's going on at any given time, but he's pretty good. Same. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's how my research has gone. It's It's been an interesting trip from 
you know, gender roles in the Providence <laughs> punk music scene to, uh, you know, 3,000-year-old trade routes. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's kind of a big, big gap, but it's all still that lens of anthropology that it makes it feel like less of a big gap, even though the topic is so much different. For me, anyway. It's like I, I have this template that I put on everything I do, and um, it all starts making sense based on that template. Yeah. I wish I had more of a template. Going from cultural to archaeological has sort of thrown my template out the window. Um, and I do wish... We, we came up in the same undergraduate program, so I, I, I hope you'll agree with me when I say this. I wish we had more of a, of a focus on theory at Rhode Island College. Because I don't think we got, at least not archaeological theory. Well, that's yeah, I didn't take much in the way of archaeology. I focused yeah. mostly on bioanth. Oh, okay. So, yeah, like... Dr. Baker, of course, would push theory. Yeah, I'm, I'm just thinking, like, what do you... Like, there was a lot of theory and application. We did, like, a lot of zoo projects. We, um, uh, in research methods. I'm thinking, like, processual thought. Processual thought. Oh, yeah, not a whole hell of a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I've I've actually... It, it could be because I was so narrowly focused. Like, I went to my undergrad being like, this is what I want to do my PhD on. So okay, wow. It's not anymore. Um, maybe it will be, but I was very like paleoanthropology, late Miocene is where it's at. It's all I've ever wanted to do with my life. Somehow, come to Iberia. We've got it. Really? Yeah. The Pleistocene, anyway. <laughs> Too new. No. Too new. One point two million years ago. <laughs> Too new. Yeah. No. It's. I've realized now that whatever I find my way into is going to be great. Mm-hmm. It's, it's as long as it's anthropology. It used to be a very narrow thing in anthropology, and I knew it really well. And then, like... So you knew about anthro before getting into your undergrad, clearly. Yeah. When did you first find out about anthro? This is a my own research question now. Um, I didn't know that it was anthropology, but, like, Fair. in, like, seventh grade or sixth grade social studies, we're, like, talking about Greece and Roman Egypt, and, like, this is awesome. Like, yeah. this is just the coolest thing ever. And, like, so we're watching like, Clash of the Titans, and I'm like, there need to be more Titans in this. And, um, like, I just, I was super into all that stuff then, and, like, really into, it was all just lumped into archaeology back then for me. Yep. Um, including, like, dinosaur stuff. Like, cause, yeah, shame, shamefully, yeah. Yeah. But also, I was, like, 11, so I get a pass back then. Um, we also grew up in the Jurassic Park era, so we're definitely allowed to have a soft spot for dinos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and then in eighth grade, Mr. Anderson post passed around a copy. It was either Newsweek or Scientific American um, that had Lucy on the cover. Oh, uh, okay. That's and fair. I was like, whoa. And I thought, I thought it was Austriopithecus. Like... Pretty good for a twelve year, a twelve year old, but that's how I remembered it. And then, in maybe two thousand four, two thousand five, there was this book Gorgon by this guy, this guy Peter Ward. He's an invertebrate, invertebrate paleontologist, but like, kind of broadly speaking, he's a mass extinction expert. Okay. So this book was on his research in the um, Permian extinction, 
okay. which is when the mam- mammal-like reptiles mostly died out. And um, it wasn't very dry. Like, he was just talking about what he was doing, what he was up to, like, his experience more than his work. So it was like when they went swimming or the girl that he had a crush on, and I'm like, this is just some guy. <laughs> and it made me realize that, like, it's like, wait, I'm just some guy. So I was like, people get paid for this shit. So I realized, like, retrospectively my entire life I wanted to do anthropology. I had this vague notion of what anthropology was, and I was like, there's no way that's not what I'm going to school for. So it was around 2004, 2005. I was like, this is, this is it for me. But it seems like you've always had some, some notion of anthropology. Yeah. And you went into college with that goal of one day becoming either an anthropologist or getting involved in anthro yes. to some extent. Absolutely. See, that's, that's weird for me, who, as someone who graduated from high school, did the college thing because sort of like you had said, where like once you get into college, they push you a certain path. Once I graduated high school, they pushed me on the college path. Yeah. And once you get in, you got assigned an advisor because I didn't know what anthropology was at that time. I always liked social studies, always liked history, always when I was checking books out of the library or doing a project, it was always early man sort of things. Um, But I had never heard the word anthropology before, probably because I went to Catholic school and most of the teachers in Catholic schools are kind of relics and not talking about hot topics. Um, But anyway, I get to get to my undergrad, get assigned an advisor and they're like, you should probably take some business classes. And I'm like, Okay. Uh, And I, for some reason, like, took Peter Allen's intro to cultural anthropology four hours on a Monday every day, six to ten every week. And um, it was rough because having both known Peter, he focused on early ideas of anthropology. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I ate it up and... Within two years, I, I changed my major and for the first time actually got excited about school because I was a horrible student. I hated school. Yeah. And uh, anthro is really what was like, you're finally going to study something you're interested in. We'll see how this goes. And now I'm pursuing a PhD and I'm just like, oh, weird. I blame anthro. Holy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, what the hell was I just going to say? Yeah. Like I, it was at the end of high school, like, I was in this program called Tech Prep, which, it was technical preparation for college. So, uh, junior and senior year, it was very, like, I don't know, it. I don't know that it was any different than anything else. They just called it Tech Prep, and it was, like, a college-oriented year, like, do well in this, and you can go right to CCRI with, like, whatever credits already sorted out. Um, but then I didn't for, like, nine years, and, but... When I went to CCRI, I made an appointment with an advisor because I'm like, I don't even know how to do any of this crap. Mm-hmm. Um, they were like, well, do you know what you want to do? And I said, anthropology. And they're like, well, we don't really have any anthropology <laughs> we courses. recommend that. <laughs> they were like, we, we have one, but it, it, they have introduction to anthropology. Okay. So that's, I don't, I don't know how, <laughs> how that could be an actual course. Like, maybe it just, like... I don't know. It was it's it has to have been the broadest thing ever. But I was there for like a year and a half just doing all of my um gen ed requirements and anything degree related that would transfer. Um and they didn't offer it once. So that's how seldomly they offer this anthropology course. But they're like, Well, we have sociology and that's kinda of the same. I'm like, No. I would have taken it. I did. Okay. <laughs> and it was it was 
kind of cool, but it wasn't, um, wasn't anthropology. Um, but yeah, so I definitely went into it knowing that I don't know how I'm going to do this, but this is what I'm going to do. And I think that's still my mentality. Yeah, just trying to find a way to, to make it work. Yeah. Yeah. So what got you into, like, what of the four fields drew you into anthropology? It sounds like the archaeological aspect. Yeah, I mean, the archaeological aspect was that, like, kind of, like, this seems really cool. And then, like, like the games on NES I was playing, where it's like <laughs> Battle of Olympus. That it's like like Greek mythology type yep. stuff. And, um... But what actually made me completely freak out was paleo. Okay. Which has that same, like, rush of, like, digging things out of the yeah, ground. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's archaeology, just older. Yeah. And I actually, um, I did, I don't know if you know, I did a field school in Kenya. I do remember you um, having done that. Yeah, and I actually found a habilis tooth. Wow. Like, I... It was kind of, like, I... The the other guy we were with, the, the guy leading our project, he had just found one. So he was, and we went to that particular site. Because um, the project that we were doing, um, it was his PhD project. And like back in the, the 50s and, and into the 60s and everything, when it was kind of like the mad rush, like go find the new hominin fossil mm-hmm. and make your name in the science. And now there's 7,000 things that all have different names, but are really actually just the same thing. Um <laughs> They found these things, and, um, like, they'd go and have some local person, like, go drop off this concrete marker. They're like, it's not like they had GPS or anything. They just used, like, latitude, longitude stuff. And so what this guy Dave Patterson wanted to do was locate those sites and do surface collections to get, like, um, faunal, like, ideas what animals these things were uh, associated with, do isotopic analysis on that and compare, it was um, Homo and Paranthropus, and compare the uh, isotopic data of the animals with data that had been published on the teeth of Homo and Paranthropus, just to look at the degree of overlap or lack thereof. Um, And you see, like, in the isotopic data, Paranthropus just stays really like i think they're they're associated with grasses and sedges or whatever and then homo was um trees and shrubs and then homo gets broader over time and more generalized and paranthropus dies out so it's suggestive that homo is is radiating out and getting more more diverse and more adaptable and these guys aren't really around anymore um so anyway we we went back to this particular site um, so his his project was developing a way to locate these sites that hadn't nobody had been to in 50, 60 years. Um, so find them and do these collections and blah, blah, blah. And so we got to this one site, and in the 60s, I think, some uh, uh, juvenile calvarium, so skull cap, of a homo habilis had been found. And he was like, if we're going to find anything good, it's going to be here because a calvarium isn't exactly something that preserves well. Mm-hmm. Um, so he ended up finding a tooth and he was like, all right, get arm's length apart and just like crawl. And after like 20 minutes of that, I found this other tooth and I was like, 
Dave, I found another tooth. And he's like, fuck you. And I was like, no, dude, I'm serious. And, um, and it was. And that's like, <laughs> like, like I'm an undergrad and I go to paleo field school. For a week. <laughs> you find yeah. a tooth that's yeah. millions of years old. Yeah, it was awesome. Like I and I'd had some experience with like dinosaur paleo uh paleontology, not dinosaur paleoanthropology, that would be embarrassing to say. Um in the Connecticut River Valley doing work on track sites. So like I I, I kind of had a developed eye anyway. But it's still way different when it's like 120 degrees and you're crawling around, moving around yeah. sand grains with a stick. Yep. Um, but yeah, and it, like a bunch of awesome stuff was found that field season, but that was like the coolest thing ever. But yeah, so it's always been paleo for me. I feel like it still is because whenever I start reading about it or doing stuff with it, it's like... I still get that feeling, like I freak out about it like nothing else. Mm-hmm. But then with all this that I'm doing, like, um, I get super excited about everything, but paleo is still just like... The base. Yeah, like when I find my way to like a new paper or a new book by whoever, it's just like this This is all encompassing now, and I gotta go buy more skull casts and <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah, so I've, I've actually just spent the last week or so reading, despite my focus on Bronze Age, um, about sort of the Paleo period, but um, the first human occupation of Iberia. So I, oh, cool. uh, a professor who I know and who I'm going to visit just completed a book um, about all of Iberia. It's pretty much a, a condensed history from first occupation all the way up to the end of the Copper Age, beginning of the Bronze. So I was like, all right. This, this pertains to my research, so I started at chapter one, I'm moving through, about halfway through, and we've just got to um, ancient modern humans, and it, it's very interesting because it there have been all these conflicting theories about whether or not Iberia wasn't populated from the top down or from bottom up, Okay. and bottom up theory always had a bit of problems associated with it because early, not even humans, but like early um, hominids would have to cross the Straits of Gibraltar. Yeah. And that poses some challenges, but it looks like that's what's happened, because um, we do see a, a south-north gradient, and um, it, it's just odd that I've been reading that sort of out of uncharacteristically for the past week, and here we are talking about Kenya and <laughs> early yeah. hominid teeth. Um, but yeah, I'll have to get you a copy of the book or yeah. s- send you the name. Yeah, at least that. Um So how old? How, that was a million years ago, you said? Uh, earliest 1. evidence 2. is like 1.24, 1.27. Um, and then once you start moving into like Neanderthal periods, um, Iberia is really known for being like the last holdout of the Neanderthals. Yeah. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that Neanderthals interbred with modern humans there and started creating their own art, which is a, obviously a point of controversy because Neanderthals aren't really associated with that but there's more and more evidence to say that once there was about 7,000 years left in the the period of in which the two populations coexisted in Iberia Neanderthals were pretty much up to the same exact thing um yeah there's um there's a skeleton of a boy from Lugarvedu the old place um that shows um very cranial 
very Neanderthal features in, in the cranium, but the rest of the body looks like a modern human. So yeah. everyone's saying, well, like, this is clear evidence that there was interbreeding going on. And until we find more instances yeah. of this, it's very, very difficult to say. Yeah, I mean, that kind of evidence has been popping up. I mean, it's just the... It's just, you sort gotta of find old, it. Yeah, yeah, it's the old guard resistance to, like, that can't have happened. No. Like, <laughs> speciation. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, if, if humans coexisted with anything, they had sex with it. Yeah. Like... <laughs> Shamelessly. Yeah, exactly. So... There's no reason to think that that wouldn't have happened with Neanderthal, and we're really closely related. That's how that happens. And, like, I know I, back when they still gave percentages rather than um, variants, I, they, 23andMe told me that I had 3% DNA associated with Neanderthal. Now it's 287 variants. Yeah, I, which, I did 23andMe as well. Did you? Yeah, we should, we should compare those at some point. Yeah. Um, was it Dr. Baker who got you into them? Into the 23? No, it was um, Cynthia Taylor. Okay. I don't know her, but... Um, when I started at Rick, uh, Dr. Baker was on sabbatical, so I took Intro to Bioanth with Cynthia Taylor. And um, we ended up like becoming friends. She's the reason I wound up going to Kenya. Cool. Because I I just thought that was like... like Those type of opportunities were like rich people things. Um because when I did the work with uh, dinosaur paleontology, um, my friend who sort of got me involved in it, he started taking me as his photography assistant while he was doing his master's thesis, which was um, describing and reclassifying re, um, this. It was classified as a Labrosaurus, which is actually a thing, um, but most of them have been reclassified as Allosaurus. Oh, okay. Um, so he was like... The Yale Peabody has this Labrosaurus fossil, Labrosaurus uh, specimen that's really, like, remarkably complete, I mean, which is, like, 15% of it. It's not not that complete. But he's like, there's enough of it to compare with their Allosaur individuals, um, so hopefully I can reclassify that. Um, I'll tell him you're my photography assistant. So it's like, all right, I haven't even gone to school yet. I'm just some idiot, like, Get to sure, day. take me seriously. Um, but we were talking to this guy, Dan Brinkman, who's um, a curatorial assistant there. And he was like, yeah, at Yale, we spend like a semester in Kenya, like blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, fucking Yale. So I'm just like, there's no way that I'm going to get to do this. But then I found out these things do exist outside of the rail- Yale curricula. Um, so knowing how seriously I wanted to get into uh, bioanth and, and paleo, Cynthia was just like you've got to go to field school and like this is kind of your window because once you're trying to do master's stuff you already need the field experience yeah it's so rick got you into field schools i had always thought that your your trip to africa had been something that you had undertaken yourself um or is it a balance of both it sounds like maybe i mean cynthia taylor encouraged me but the opportunity sort of just, like, plopped into you. Um, sort of. She was like, you should look into field schools. So I was like, maybe I could do that. So then I started, I looked into them myself, and I, I organized it on my own. Um, like, I found Kubi 4 Field School, and I started bothering them. And I, I looked at Turkana Basin Institute, and um, 
like Tolly, and a few other ones. Um, but yeah, like it was just encouragement from Rick. They didn't really facilitate anything. Okay. Um, yeah, because uh, so I'm about to tell you about a project I'm working on for the first time, but it, it sort of has to do with what you're mentioning and things that you you've sort of just mentioned. Um, you you pointed out that you thought these were experiences for like rich people. Yeah. Um, I don't know how your experience has been on on overseas excavations, but mine have certainly been that um, there are people who can afford to go to digs and then there are people who are like clearly like desperate for a scholarship because they need to be digging because like you're saying, once you're at the master's level, you need that experience. And I went through my entire undergrad having done one field school my senior year and it was in Wakefield, Rhode Island with Pierre Mornon. So it wasn't... It, we dug something like 30 test pits, yeah. but it wasn't an open context excavation. So my first year in my undergrad, I, I had people in my cohort who were just like, oh, yeah, this is my sixth in excavation. And I'm just like, how? Like, how how do you do that? Like my family, fairly well to do, but like I was the only one in my, my graduate program working full time while attending school. So it sort of shows you the 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 balance of that and they're just like yeah i mean i apply for a lot of scholarships i get help from my parents and and i go it's like damn um and then so anyway to backpedal um a project i'm working on now i've been in talks with dr gulapali from rhode island college's anthropology program with sylvia Oliveira, dr sylvia Oliveira, who's in the modern languages department at rhode island college um, she helps me do a study abroad for my Portuguese minor, and she's always very big on getting people to do an abroad experience. And um, Dr. Garcin Chanfro, who's with Study Abroad at Rhode Island College, she also teaches some French courses. And I'm trying to form a connection between the excavation I'm a part of in Portugal and Rhode Island College. Now, you've been to Rick, you know there's a huge Portuguese student population. You also know that it's mostly students who work full-time while going to yeah. school. Um, that when it comes to undertaking a summer field school experience, it's a toss up between, can I afford it? How much time out of work is it? What's the flight like? What all these factors get, get boiled down and digging somewhere like, I don't know, Mallorca or Israel. It's like, you're, you're coughing up $4,000 for three weeks. And that's before the, the price tag of a flight gets added on. If you do my, my digs in Romania and in Portugal have both been very affordable. They're under $2,000 for four-week excavations. And that's unheard of. Yeah, that's awesome. And the reason for that is they're not associated with universities. The doctors leave it up to your institution to determine whether or not this program deserves credit. Now, my dig in Romania, that's been going on for over 40 years. It's very easy for them, very easy for another institution to be like, a 40-year established excavation that has found a Roman fort, yeah, we'll give you credit for working on that. For working in Portugal, it's a little different. Um, my connect over there, he is a, a state archaeologist, okay. and he hosts these field schools out of homes that he owns or rents. So he'll set up a summer's worth of field schools, so they overlap a bit. This one runs for four weeks. That final week where this one's closing out, this one is starting up. And that's his summer plan. Um, and he invites students from universities and from overseas to, to be a part of these. And they pay solely for their living arrangements. But he's not working through university, so he can't assign credit. Now, these digs, some of them last. Um, Coladinho is 
think on their eighth or ninth year of excavation, a mm. Roman fort that collapsed in on itself. Not not a fort, but a tower. So you have all these layers of stratigraphy slammed into the ground, and they're trying to make sense of it, and they're pulling out some really interesting finds. Um, and then the site I was a part of um, was a Bronze Age site located at the top of a mountain. No water sources nearby, but there's clearly a very large settlement up there. Very odd. Yeah. Um, they're going into their third season right now. So I'm trying to form this connection between Rhode Island College and being like, you can send students for anthropological experience, archaeological experience, linguistic experience. Um, maybe toss them a scholarship or some credit. And the difficulty we're running into is because they're not digs that are widely publicized or have these long periods of, of routine excavation. Um, Rick's not getting behind it as much, but for, for two grand for four weeks in a European field school, it's unheard of. Yeah, that's kind of incredible. And the snag we're running into is that Rhode Island College wants you to pay for credit at Rhode Island College. So, yeah, the field school is two grand. It's less than that, but once you start factoring in flight and food for the weekends, because food during the trip is paid for, um, Rick wants to tack on almost double the price to pay for $600 of credit at Rick. And it's like, are you serious? Like, why do you have to make it more difficult? That's, like, even with that, that's still pretty affordable. Yeah, that's... Well, comparatively, it's pretty affordable. Like, even with the Rick credits, like, the... Mine was six weeks. That's that's a longer one, but yeah. Yeah, and it was like eight grand or something like that. And I don't remember at this point if that included the plane tickets, which round trip to Kenya is like eighteen hundred dollars. So that was the type of thing like like I'd be I, I used to, I work at a paper factory, but I also for a while had my own thing where I was doing wood finishing on boats. Okay. Um, so I'd be working seven to three thirty, and then going to a boat and working until like nine thirty, um, to and then just keeping all the money because like I gotta pay for this freaking field school, um, and then that and borrowing extra on student loans. It's not it's not easy when you don't have the. The finances to exactly like provide you for a day really have to get creative. Academia is a weird place, regardless. Yeah, it's it's not fun. The yeah. more I'm involved in it, the more I'm like, this sucks. Even anthropology, to an extent, like it it's great. I love being in class. Love learning about it. How? What do you do after class? How do you make it into a career? And I think that's where both of us are. At. Yeah. Um. Kind of to some extent. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, I kind of consider it my career, but not my job. Fair. Almost, like, because it's, it's what I I spend my time, like, researching and talking about and, and sort of doing, like, even even working on, like, the documentaries or whatever, I realize that my narratives, like, I have a broad topic, like whaling, and then I go and research a bunch of stuff and let the research that I'm doing suggest what the story is going to end up being rather than saying, I want to tell the story of whaling in New Bedford or something. I'm going, and I do have like a loose idea of, I want to tell the story of whaling in New Bedford because I started, the first one I did was on the industrial revolution and I hate the industrial revolution. Fun period. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I did that one kind of accidentally. 
Okay. Um, well, I was doing like really short like introduction to anthropology videos, like the four fields, then mm-hmm. like well anthropology as a whole, and then each of the four. I've, I've seen a few of them. Oh, really? Yeah. That's cool. Facebook. Um, yeah, I guess I'm sharing them. So um, they they got better as they went along, and for some reason people are enjoying the linguistics one. Like you've been posting a lot of things that are, are Gale associated, and Gale was my my favorite professor at Rick. Really? So I, I've been watching those yeah. specifically. Um, yeah, and actually, someone is a linguistics major. Oh, cool! Because of the my my intro to nice. linguistics. Yeah, you've won one over. Yeah. Um, this is her last semester. She's retired. She is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I ran into her, and she's honestly never looked happier. Really? Yeah. She's just like, I'm fine with it, and I'm like, okay. Like, I'm I'm really happy for her, but I think she's a huge loss to yeah. the department. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I know Elijah Edelman is going to be teaching some of the linguistics mm-hmm. um but he wasn't living with a tribe and like doing like boots on the ground linguistic anthropology yep. work um yeah so knowing linguistics like i can teach an intro to linguistics course i am not a linguist so i would not want to do it yeah not when not once you start getting into like the mathematical aspects of language yeah like that's when it starts getting difficult. Yeah, and I I love it so much. <laughs> I love linguistics so much, and like now that I have the book writing itch, I actually kind of want to write like a layperson linguistics book. That is absolutely necessary because you get bogged down in technical terminology yeah. too easy. Yeah, and and I feel like I know enough about linguistics to bridge the gap but i know little enough about linguistics to not get too far-fetched you're you're bringing up a a point that i don't i think would be good to mention um the lack of simplification in academic text that just makes it inaccessible to anyone who doesn't have a vocabulary that is to the nth degree that was because i wanted to do anthropology so much longer before i even realized that anthropology was a viable option for non-superhumans. Um, I would be reading all this stuff, and there's, and a lot of it was in like the early days of the internet when it was useless. Um, so there was, I didn't have any kind of academic vocabulary. I'm not necessarily unintelligent, but I've had no exposure to this stuff, so it just gets put away in my head somewhere, and then eventually I'm like, I've read that before. And I might not have the definition of it, but I understand how it works in context. That sucks. Yeah. Like, you shouldn't have a 10-year amateur passion for something before you can get a lexicon of what you're even talking about. So, yeah, that I... Especially, like, when you realize there's, like, 7,000-some-odd languages in the world. How? Exactly. Like, how... There, like, there are indigenous signed languages. It's like, what? But, like, the amount of linguistic diversity is mind-blowing. And, um, I don't know. I think there's a lot there to get people excited about without the uh, gatekeeping of academia. Gatekeeping's a good word. Because I think it's applicable in almost every field yeah even like archaeology now i know in archaeology you can get bogged down with technical terms especially when you start talking about things like dating 
because like yeah everyone knows carbon 14 but when you start getting into things like potassium argon and like more unique forms of dating yeah. uranium strontium <laughs> yeah okay we get what you're going for just say like dating methods yeah and then you start throwing technical jargon around about like theoretical models just like break it down to as much base part just so you can get people at the entry level in that way academia is not this overly complex thing that only a percentage of the population can understand if everyone can enjoy it everyone's going to want to be a part of it yeah we talk about how anthropology is applicable to everything if you scroll through facebook most of like the clickbait you can view it in an anthropological lens and just be like oh yeah that makes perfect sense i mean if people took anthro 101 like intro to cultural they'd have an interest in this but because it's not presented and it means that is digestible to the greater public you you have to rely on some buzzfeed article to tell you about it (laughs) yeah like it's very disheartening and that's why i'm really enjoying the book that i'm reading right now because she's taking millions of years of history she's going back 1.25 million years ago all the way up to the bronze age like the start of the bronze and she's like i'm gonna do it in seven chapters and she ends every chapter with uh some conclusion section and now wow ending it with some conclusions and like making it no more than two pages that's your whole summation of a chapter <laughs> wow no more than two pages and she doesn't get bogged down into issues that are huge controversial issues she's like some people think this way some people just think this way and honestly the only way we're going to figure out which way it actually is is if we do more research done next topic and it's just like wow that's so refreshing it's not like this over in-depth analysis of a particular time point. It's a compendial review of this period of history. And if you want to pursue it more, look through the end notes. Yeah. And I think that does a lot more for a discipline when you can put an entire assemblage of a long chronology together and present it and something that's cogent, coherent, and then leave it up to the reader. Like, Hey, if this caught your eye, because it's easy to understand, you can pursue it to a, to yeah. a greater degree by pursuing any of these. Yeah, that's awesome. And that is what... I don't know if every generation feels this way coming up through whatever they come up through. Um, it feels like that is a bit of a shift. Um, maybe it's just because I went, like, Rick is a four fields department where all the faculty is super excited about things, even even though there's the relics that are really sort of narrow. Um, but there are people and, and students and faculty are, who are super excited about whatever it is that you're up to. Um, like Mary was always excited about everything, and Pravina, um, even though I never had any classes with her, she was always really excited about things. I don't know if you met Deborah Caspin. No. Um, I took urban anthropology with her, and uh, she was in my uh, intro to cultural video. Um, just the the way that a lot of the faculty is, because it's a four fields um, department, um, they sort of have that like I sort of hate the word, but holistic view of yeah. things. Um, I don't know if it's just because I, like, I'm, I'm coming up through that and I'm like reaching out to some old classmates and everyone's like, everything's great. I love all of it. I love what you're doing. I love what I'm doing. I love what, what so-and-so is doing. Like Maybe I'm being naive, but I, I feel like our generation doesn't suck as much. 
as much as holistic is a loaded word, I, I do like it. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, like... I, yeah. I, I hate that it's a loaded word. I think it's applicable. It's yeah. like where the cliche makes sense, but it's still a cliche. And it's annoying. And the four field approach. I'm looking into PhD programs now, and every single one that uh, had a four field approach, I was like, oh my god, this is so much better. Like, because all of these things intertwine in some yeah. context, and to to have to fragment from that, it just seems like you're detracting. Uh, especially at like the undergrad level, you should be exposed to all four. Yeah. My biggest problem with the four field was I couldn't pick one of the four. It took me so long to finally just be like archaeology. It took me two years of sweating over cultural <laughs> and like well, maybe a month about linguistics because I, I spent a lot of time with Gail and I really wanted to do the linguistic thing. But I was like, I don't get as much enjoyment out of this as I do. Cultural is definitely the dark side because it's so easy to find whatever you want. You just run with it. Yeah. Um, and then archaeology is like the bit of the harder option, but I went with it and I'm very happy with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not go bio. It was it was fascinating, but I have no strengths in bio. Really? Yeah. I went to, I took Catholic schools from kindergarten all the way oh, to 12th yeah, grade. Yeah. So I think there's some reasons why I'm not very good <laughs> Yeah, <in> biology. <laughs> They don't acknowledge biology. What is that? What do you mean? <laughs> Australia, what? Yeah. Yeah, I, um... I, I don't... I feel like I'm going to find my way back to BioAnth, but I also feel like... I don't want to say I'm getting a name, but I have, like, a body of work to be like... I do this stuff, so let me weasel my way into your project and bring a camera. The way I sort of have been treating this is um, I've been making fun of myself a lot. Like, I went, when I was growing up, I wanted to be in a band so bad. And then, you know, you're in a band and you realize, oh, this isn't affordable. And, like, I say that, but I'm still in a band. I'm still trying to make the music thing work. And then I was like, all right, what's my backup plan? Probably school. All right, I'll go to school. What do I pick? Probably the, the field that is... Just as unreliable as trying to start a band, <laughs> anthropology. Yeah, and my my time in academia has sort of been like being in a band. You you start out, you pick an instrument, and you like this genre of music. All right, you run with that genre of music, but you you wind up in this other genre, and you're making a name for yourself in it, and you're just like, it's what I want to do. It's not exactly the yeah. area I want to do, but this allows me to do that, and then maybe one day I can do both somehow. Yeah. Maybe I publish one book about gender studies in Rhode Island's punk scene. <laughs> By then I'll be sold that it won't really be relative and I'll be the relic that I'm describing. But <laughs> You could do that though. Self-publishing is super easy now. It is. You can go right through Amazon. And yeah, that's what I'm, I'm actually doing a book on my field experience. Oh yeah, you recently accidentally self-published, right? Um. Well, yeah, I... <laughs> accidentally self-published. Yeah, I accidentally submitted it for pre-order. Um, I have until June 10th, I think, to submit the final version of the manuscript. Um, but yeah, I, when I got back from Kenya and was like processing everything that happened there and happened in my life in my absence, um, I spent a lot of time like reading through my journal from field school and reading through my field notes and just like sort of reflecting on my life and I ended up writing this huge like 30,000 word blog post about field school and 
I started converting that into a manuscript, like cleaning up the language so it's a bit more formal, yeah. adding pictures, expanding on things, um, taking out names of individuals, yeah, um, or taking out last names of individuals, um, stuff like that, and then like because I want. I want people to get excited about anthropology and realize that the people doing it don't necessarily have anything special about them. They're just into different stuff. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of um, like that guy with a Gorgon book. I'm publishing this kind of behind-the-scenes account of all of like the isolation and insecurities and like... I've never been on a plane before. Now I'm flying to Kenya and like <laughs> like I've had debilitating anxiety disorder my entire life and now I'm flying to Kenya and um like like you see like me putting out a DVD and like you see what I want you to see on that DVD. You don't see the hours that go into it. Yeah, you don't see like I'm excited that 1 minute of finished footage now takes me in under an hour to, to like Prepare. produce and and edit um and like i i want that like under the water like the, the the bottom end of the iceberg to be exposed and i i was like if people are getting into like what i'm doing for its own sake and there are a few people like i can i can put together an ebook <laughs> yeah he's a weird guy and um like for a few bucks you can read this and like there's cool pictures of what I did. There's cool descriptions of what I did. Um, and you you see, like, the, the, like, really isolating, like, I've spent literally every night with the girl I've been dating for, like, five straight years. And now I'm in a tent in Kenya and I don't know anybody. Like, that's a big deal. And you really feel horrible, and you feel isolated, and you never want to do anything but this again in your life, but you, you're kind of navigating how to deal with everything that's going on. But then you see the three-and-a-half-minute Kubi 4 Field School promo video, and I'm in it, and I'm like, I've learned more in this few weeks of field school than I've learned in four years of formal education yeah. and I can apply it mm -hmm. so that's what you see from my field school experience you don't see me like how am I going to get through this <laughs> so I, I want I want that sort of transparency um, which I guess is my spin on public anthropology to it's interesting yeah it's 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 almost like you're trying to capture the research, the research process and make that accessible to people who are only interested in like some clickbaity article that's going to be summed up in yeah, kind a of a couple hundred words. And and everything that I do, I try and build in how I did it. Um like in all my credits, I I talk about like what I used to edit what um like different pieces of equipment like um I I talk about when or, I'm recording video with my phone. Um, just, like, how accessible this type of stuff is. Most, I'm, like, the new iPhone. You can film anything with it. Yeah, I know. <laughs> you, you might have to get something better than the stock camera. Um, but even if you don't, like, the... It, it It's crazy. I remember, like, 
being in a band in the early 2000s, it was like, let's try and scrape up $500 and get, get two hours at a recording studio and put out a four-song demo. And... Yeah, I, I can comment there, because uh, my drummer and I, he's, he's about our age, and the youngest member of my band is 22. So when it came to our first release, we were like, let's just make a demo, and we'll, we'll do that. And my drummer and I, we came up when it was like, the Providence Rock Hunt, and you try and get exposure through that. You try and get on the radio. You try and get on MySpace. We, like, our big goal, we, we got on Spotify, and from Spotify, we were making sales in Germany. We were just like, huh, this this is weird. Like, yeah. Bandcamp sales were the way to go, and he and I were sitting there like, I never thought we'd be trying to figure out how to ship things to Japan <laughs> for our demo. Yeah. And we don't know how to do this. Why did we only charge $10 an album when shipping is going to be $10? Yeah. And it's like mind-boggling that that technology is even available yeah. to disperse it. And it's just there. Yeah. Like, you don't need anything special. Like, the the first videos I did, it was literally all just me. I put my cell phone on a selfie stick, and I'm like, this is where the Gatsby was lit on fire. And then, like, the Industrial Revolution DVD, by then I was like, I can't control picture and audio quality with one device. No. So all of the audio, like in, in some of that, like you can see in my chest pocket, I have my phone sitting right there. That's because the, all the audio on that is done with my cell phone. Especially when you're like outside. Yeah. Like... It, yeah, exactly. So the fact that so much is so accessible, mm-hmm. like anybody could be doing this crap. And it's just about pushing yourself into actually doing it. Yeah, and, and getting good at marketing and being like... Yeah, you should pay me $40 for this thing that I made in my spare time. Like, I feel really uncomfortable charging for things. Yeah, I can see that. I, I hate, like, pushing, whether it be my academic life or my musical life, I hate being that guy on Facebook that's like, check this out, we're playing a show in a basement tomorrow. Yeah. But, like, you kind of have to. You do. You definitely have to. You just have to do it in a way that isn't too pushy. Yeah. And um, especially when nowadays it's like, like my dog needs an operation, I need $5,000, and it's like, okay, that like, people have so many things that are more important than, like, my fundraiser for orangutans because I feel like bugging to Philadelphia. Um, I, I, I don't feel like any of the things that I'm pushing are as legitimate as so many things that other people, like, they're starting their, their GoFundMes and, and everything. Um, it, it's so hard to feel like what I'm doing has any monetary value. And then like even pushing an event, like, um, actually a month from today, I decided I have to start advertising it today. Um, the Audubon Society is screening Pedal for Pongo. Oh, cool. And, um, I gotta make an ad and start like heckling people. Like, you you should come to this. this. Do this. Um, but then like, you can just watch the film, but you have to pay admission to the Audubon Society. So then I feel weird, like, people gotta pay ten bucks to get in or whatever, and, like... Yeah, it's like running into a friend at a show and being like, oh, we're playing next weekend, come see us! You gotta pay ten dollars to get in, because I can't, like, just get you one for free, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Pay yeah. to hang out with me. Fine. <laughs> Are there any other topics you want to hit? Um, I don't know, because I don't even know what we have hit at this point. All but right. I, I was gonna say, I can't imagine that we could come up with a... With anything else to talk about that uh, wouldn't accidentally be backtracking, covering something we've already covered. That and I don't want this to be longer than an hour, and this has been recorded for two hours and 45 minutes. Three hours. Oh, 2.45, yeah, yeah, because yeah. we, we talked before. We yeah, we, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, anyone's going to take you seriously. Yeah, if I get chased by a labradoodle, if my cause of death is doodle, I'm upset with myself. <laughs> From outside, they like when they actually start barking, they sound a little bit intimidating, but it's like then when it's this thing and this guy, it's like... Yeah, that. <laughs> They're great, though. Oh, he thinks you're finally going to pay attention to him. <laughs> How old is he? Uh, he's 10. And he's like almost 16, I think. Wow. Yeah, if you told me like, he was 16, I'd believe that. The gray hair somehow makes him look so much older. Yeah. That. Also looking like the dog from Futurama, kind of. <laughs> he's a good dude, though. But yeah, thanks. No thanks problem. a lot for doing this. If you ever want to do one that's more structured, like pick a topic and read on it. There are going to be more specific things. Um, Once you start wandering into uh, Bronze Age Iberia or Mediterranean <laughs> Concepts of Trade, I'm the guy. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been Anthrospin. Connecting non-specialists to anthropology and specialists to specializations that aren't their own, Anthrospin is a podcast for everyone. We covered a lot in this episode, and there's a lot that didn't make the cut. If you have any questions or comments about today's episode, or if you'd like more information regarding anything we talked about, or if you're an anthropologist and would like to be a part, feel free to get in touch at anthrospin at gmail.com. For all of Pedal Powered Anthropology's content, check out anthrospin.wordpress.com. Anthrospin is made possible in part by my generous Patreon sponsors, including Deborah DiMarino, Mindy Walls, Anisha Savino, Emily Colgan, Alexandria Roll, Scott Rossi, Chris Catan, and Colleen McRamos. For more information about how to contribute, head on over to patreon.com anthrospin. Contributions in any amount can get you awesome perks like behind-the-scenes updates and early access to blog entries, early releases of video episodes, early releases of DVDs, exclusive giveaways, and warm, fuzzy feelings. Again, that's patreon.com slash anthrospin. Thanks for listening, everyone.